the prime obligation of every human being is to speak out against injustice. We are our brother's keeper. You're listening to The Keeper, brought to you by the Lantos Foundation for Human Rights and Justice. I'm Katrina Lantos-Sweat. On a bitter cold Christmas Eve in 1944, a little Jewish girl, 13 years old, but with her diminutive size and Shirley Temple curls, she looked closer to eight, kissed her mother goodbye, and alone began to make her way towards the Swiss border. A short while earlier, they had fled from Hungary, where Jews were facing deportation and death at the hands of Nazi occupiers. The family had sought refuge in Switzerland, but the Swiss had expelled them. But they had heard that children alone might be given refuge. And so, with fearful, broken hearts, they said goodbye, and this child walked with her little suitcase in hand towards the barbed wire of no man's land. That little girl was my mother, and today, on The Keeper, she will share some of her story of that terrible night and how she survived to become one of our country's great advocates for human rights all around the world. I am so proud to welcome my mother, Annette Lantos, to our program today. Welcome, Mom. Nice to be here. Now, that night at the Swiss border was clearly a night of danger and ultimately deliverance for you. But before we talk more about that incredible episode in your life, I'd like to ask you to tell us just a little bit about your childhood before the Germans occupied Hungary. Well, before the Germans occupied Hungary, I had a very wonderful childhood. My mother and father owned probably Hungary's biggest jewelry store and where my father was known not only for his wealth, but especially for his charitableness. He always felt that he had to give way beyond his means in order to be a good example to other people around him who looked to him for leadership. He was leader in the community, and he believed that when people who were leaders in the community gave beyond their means, that inspired the rest of the community to be charitable and to give more than they otherwise would. And so my father was always the leader in this community. So my childhood, before I turned 13, sort of a very idyllic childhood. We had a lovely summer home where I spent my summers. You speak about your father, and I should mention that my oldest son is named for your father, who was um, Sebastian, but the Hungarian pronunciation for the nickname for Sebastian is what? Shabby. Shabby. (laughs) Shabby, and we call your son Shabby. We do, we do indeed. Which is lovely indeed. One quick story that I would love you to share about your father, Shebby, which I think illustrates what you were talking about, this tremendous generosity and warmth. Tell the story about the time when he arrived at his jewelry store without any trousers on. Can you tell that to our listeners? You know, we had, in those days, very often beggars came to our home ringing the bell, and they never went away without being very substantially helped by my father. 
And one day, another beggar came to our home, and my father did not have enough cash on hand to be able to give him as much as he would have liked to. So what he did was he turned around, took off his beautiful new <laughs> pants, and handed it to him and said, here, please sell this, and this will round up our little offering. What a sort of saintly yes. figure he was. and. I know and I remember vividly that when we went back to Hungary for the first time, this was now long after the war in the mid-60s, and people would come up to you, people who were strangers to you, and would say, your father Shebi saved our family, or when we were destitute. You know, that's the way I wanted to introduce you to your grandfather, whom you did not have the good fortune to know in person. We would go into stores, and my name at that time was Lantos, but I would say my maiden name is Tillemann. And they asked you, are you related to Shabby Tillemann? So I said, (laughs) Shabby Tillemann was my father. Invariably, the response was, Shabby was my best friend. And it seemed like all of Budapest felt that they were Shabby's best friend yeah. because he was such a, not only charitable, but such a loving person yes. and such an open-hearted and warm being that everybody loved. So talk to us now, if you would, about how your life, what in many ways was a wonderful life, of course, things were already beginning to get dangerous during the war. There were the quotas. There was the rising anti-Semitism, people being kicked out of schools. You had to leave your school to go to one that would still accept Jewish children. But what was the date in March when everything turned to darkness? March 19, Sunday morning, 1944. It was the darkest day in my life and in the history of the one million Jews of Hungary. There were still one million Jews left in Hungary. They were still somewhat intact, perhaps not unscathed, but the community was intact. Now, you and your mother, as was the pattern every Sunday, were planning to walk a short distance to your grandparents for the traditional Sunday meal. We could not cross the main boulevard because the German troops were marching down uh, shoulder to shoulder in endless rows, you know, occupying all the main boulevard of Budapest. So we could not cross the boulevard to get to my maternal grandparents where we usually spent our Sunday meals. So my mother said, well, what shall we do now? I said, well, whatever we do, we are not going to go home. I sensed that the most dangerous place for us to be was in our own home apartment, which is very unusual for us. I wasn't even 13. You were 12. And, you know, I think most people's instinct would have been immediately to say, let's go home. Yes, yes. And I said, anywhere but home. I would rather stay in the park and sleep in the park rather than go home. So my mother didn't know what to do. She intended to go home, which would have been the end of us. But instead, we decided to go to my other grandmother's house where we did not have to cross that main boulevard. That was my father's mother, my Tillemann grandmother. So we actually headed there and we told Tillemann grandmother what the situation was and my mother explained that my daughter just doesn't want to go home. She feels that we are in great danger in our home, so could we sleep here overnight? The next morning our maid called your intuition turned yes. out to be 100% yes. right. Yeah. Called and says, don't come near the house. The German SS, the people who were entrusted in rounding up the Jewish population and were known for their cruelty and very scary people, 
they were there the first thing Monday morning, and when they found out that we are gone, in their fury, they came into our house and started throwing down our furniture from the balcony, from the sixth floor. You were responsible, really, for your mother's yes. life and your life being spared, because oh, had yeah. you gone home, we would you would not be here. And in part because you were a prominent family. They had you at the top of the list exactly. to round up for deportation. They were in the short list of 10 to 12 people. Your cousins, your first cousins, were the Gabor sisters, who were already pretty famous, you yes. said. Yes. You know, Zsa had, I think, been a Miss Hungary. Yes. And the two very glamorous sisters who were to become well-known actresses yes. in America, Zsa and yes. Ava, were already out of Hungary, but the oldest sister, Magda, was still in Hungary and was working as a secretary at the Portuguese embassy. When Magda was told that the Nazis were already there to take us, my father, of course, was away in the workforce, the Jewish contingent of the army, and so there was only my mother and I who remained, and then she was told that the Germans, the SS, were already there to take us. She convinced the ambassador to give us a refuge in the Portuguese embassy. So, so you to... and your mother and her mother and yes. her father, it, yes. you were given basically a temporary, rather tentative refuge yes. in one of the official embassy yes. residences. While this was happening, and you know, it was of course a lifesaver that you could yes. hide there, Around this time, a couple of months later, it was that the legendary Swedish diplomat and humanitarian Raoul Wallenberg came to Budapest, and he really came with the mission of trying to save as many Jewish lives as possible. And and a number of our listeners will know that you became the great champion of trying to uncover what had happened to Wallenberg. But at this time, he came there as this incredibly young Swedish diplomat, and he really instituted extraordinary measures completely outside of normal diplomatic protocol and procedures. Can you talk a little bit about what some of the things were that Wallenberg did? He sort of devised this imaginary thing as a protective passport, which he handed out to people as they were lined up in front of the embassy trying to seek some kind of a help. And this um, protective passport basically told that the owner is awaiting immigration to Sweden under the protection of the Swedish king and should be exempt from wearing the yellow star and the other measures that were instituted against the Jews in Hungary. So he really inspired the rest of the diplomatic corps to also do something to extend some measure of protection to these people in Budapest. And, you know, I remember hearing Dad refer to this Schutzpass, or protective passport, as basically a fictitious document. And yet, this little piece of paper, these visas, these passports, they, for literally tens of thousands, meant ultimately the difference between life and death. Because many of the Germans, not all, and and you've said that the Arrow Cross sometimes who were the Hungarian fascists, if possible worse than the SS, tended to rip them up and ignore them. But the Germans 
always very bureaucratic, tended to give a little more credence to what looked like a very official government document. Yes. Um, That's absolutely correct. The occupying Nazi forces, to some extent, recognized this passport and allowed people who owned one to go to special residences. You know, eventually, the embassies hired apartment houses where they housed all the people owning this protective passport and put big flags on it, showing that this is a Swedish residence this is a Swiss resident yeah. and to some extent in not in all cases but in some cases they managed to help these people survive that's how your father Tom and his aunt and uncle managed to survive in one of these Swedish protected houses yes they sometimes were referred to as yes. safe houses yes now as we know there were raids on these safe houses yes. because the Nazis would catch yeah. wind of what was going on and so they were by no means either a guarantee no. of safety, but in the midst of what was a total hell, it was a chance. Yes. It was a chance at survival. And it really was Raoul that inspired the others to sort of follow his lead. And one of those was the Portuguese ambassador. Yes. It was on Portuguese documents that you and your mother were able to escape. When the Portuguese charge, Mr. and Mrs. Branquinho, were finally recalled just before the Russians invaded completely, they managed to take a few of us, my aunt, Jolie Gabor, and her husband, my mother and me, and Hungarian member of parliament. His name was Egri Aurel, who also was seeking refuge in the embassy. So a few of us were crowded into two cars and managed to cross the border. You yeah. were very fortunate, and yet at any moment, if a German yeah. had said, no, these are not Portuguese, yes. if they had said, speak to us in Portuguese, yeah. they could have just grabbed you, and the next stop would have been Auschwitz. Yeah. You know, one is so grateful for the courage of these diplomats, yes. who of course put their own well-being at risk, to try and save lives. And it is important to note that they often did this without the approval of their governments. Right. Their governments ordered them yes. not to do it, and yet their humanity overrode even their sense of duty to follow the rules. They were ready to break the rules to try and That's save absolutely lives. absolutely right. We owe our lives to them and the eternal gratitude for yes. their willingness you know, to see beyond the protocol. And I remember when I was quite young, you and Dad took us to Portugal, oh, and yeah. we had the opportunity to meet some relatives yes. of the Branquinhos. Yes. It was not the yes. Charge himself, but some of the relatives. We have a picture yes. Yes. with some That's of the relatives, right. and you expressed your gratitude. I want to get back to that fateful night. You had been expelled from yes. Switzerland, and you had been expelled into France, but France was not a safe place for Jews either. And the Germans were threatening to launch a reoccupation of France. And so your lives were very much in danger. And your mother felt that the only safe place that you might be able to stay was Switzerland. And you had caught wind that if children alone could get in, they might be given refuge. You have written some wonderful recollections, sort of a memoir, which we hope will be published before too long. Would you be willing to read from your memoir your recollections of that fateful yes, night? Certainly, certainly, I would be very happy. And so it came to pass that at Christmas 1944, I was carrying a small bag with my few belongings. 
I stood behind a bush while the French border guard made his rounds, and when the two armed officers reached the furthest point on their survey territory, I ran to the barbed wire, tore a little opening in it with my bare hands, and climbed over into no man's land, which lay between France and Switzerland. I heard the French guard returning at breakneck speed when they heard the noise, but I had a head start. By then I felt the earth give way under me, a thin sheet of ice, and I was in water to my waist. I saw my pride and joy, my little blue hat float away from me, and as I reached out to get it, the little blue hat fell with a plop to the bottom of the shallow river flowing through no man's land. I had no time to worry about such trivialities, for by now the French border guard were shooting warning shots into the air. In the pitch dark, they missed me with their flashlight. Fearing air raids, no stronger light was allowed to be used. It all happened very fast, and by the time I began to be conscious of the freezing cold and the pain it was causing me, I was already coming out of the water, tearing at the barbed wire, heedless of my bloody hands, and making my way through the hole. As I straightened from climbing through the wire, friends, a Swiss soldier with outstretched guns greeted me with a non-too-friendly halt. When he saw it was a shivering child, he took me into his little guardhouse where a wonderful fire was going. I took off my soaked shoes, stockings, shirt and coat, wrapped myself in a blanket brought by the kind Swiss soldiers. Soon he brought me a steaming cup of hot chocolate, which almost compensated me for all my terrors. I had not tasted chocolate or anything like it for the previous five years. It was an incredible treat on Christmas Eve. The friendliness of that soldier washed away the memories of the cruel police forces which orchestrated our deportation just about ten days previously. Next morning I was marched to a detention camp where I was to stay for many months to come. It's such an incredible story. I mean, I sit here with you today and I try to imagine you alone, terrified, fording a river on December 24th between France and Switzerland and how terrified you must have been. But I love the fact that even in the midst of all of your fear and terror and loneliness and loss, you could still appreciate the joy and the hope represented by a <laughs> cup of cocoa given to a little Jewish girl on Christmas Eve. It's such a wonderful story and such a touching moment and, and an incredible set of, of terrifying and remarkable experiences. I want to thank you, Mom, so much for sharing your story with us, especially during this holiday season when we're going to be celebrating Hanukkah and families will be celebrating Christmas both of which are celebrations of light and of miracles and of hope. And your story, frankly, feels miraculous and feels full of hope. And even in the midst of that darkness, there was light and there were moments of light. And for that, I am so grateful. I hope you will come back again and share more of your stories with us. Thank you. Thank you. It was my pleasure to be able to share some of this history that is also your history <laughs> and the history of my grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And I hope they will remember it and remember the miracles that kept us alive and enabled us to create this wonderful family in this free country for which we will be grateful the rest of our lives. Abraham Lincoln memorably said, 
All that I am or hope to be, I owe to my angel mother. That is exactly how I feel about my own mother. Thank you for joining us today for this special broadcast of The Keeper. This episode of The Keeper was produced and recorded by the Lantos Foundation for Human Rights and Justice. To support our work and for more information on today's guest and topic, visit us at www.lantosfoundation.org.